Field Arts Audio presents. You may not know his name, you may not know his face, but you know his voice. Every Who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch, who lived just north of Whoville, did not. The Grinch hated Christmas the whole Christmas season. Oh, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be, perhaps, that his shoes were too tight. It could be his head wasn't screwed on just right. But I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. If you've ever read Charles Dickens' The Life and Adventures of Nicholas Nickleby and laughed at the escapades of the chapters where Nicholas encounters the Crummles family, you have a pretty good idea of what life in the theater was like in the 19th and, to a great extent, early 20th century. The Crummles are a touring theatrical family of troopers, lovingly satirized by Dickens. At the head of the troupe was patriarch Victor Crummles, an actor-manager, with all of the compulsion and zeal of every actor and producer before or since rolled into one. Precariously balancing art and business and the mysterious dynamics of family life with dreams of the great parts in Shakespeare while serving his audience and at the end of the day making sure there was food on the table and a roof over their heads. A hard-scrabble, unpredictable world where one prayed that one made just enough money to get to the next town, the next performance. A life where one truly had to sing for one supper, or one didn't eat. In America, the theatrical tradition was no different, even in many ways, up to the early 20th century. What especially dragged and lagged American theater behind the rest of the Western world was a puritanical streak evident since America's founding, where art, and especially the theater, was looked at as not proper and not healthy. It wasn't something respectable people did for a living. It was in this theatrical world that William Henry Pratt who had only been on stage once before in his life, wanted so much to be part of. Born and raised in England by his siblings after his parents' deaths, Pratt left for Canada in 1909 at the age of 22 and took paying work, all of it manual labor, wherever he could get it to stay alive, all along with an eye on the theater. As he worked and moved across the Canadian landscape, he often made inquiries for work in the local theatrical companies without success. This is Your Life, a program for all America. And now here he is, Mr. This is Your Life himself, Ralph Edwards. This is Your Life, Boris Karloff. You've played hundreds of parts on the stage and pictures on radio and television, but your role here tonight is completely new, isn't it? It is indeed. I'm sure you'll enjoy it, so sit back and relax. What did you say? <laughs> <laughs> this is your life, Boris Karloff. Boris Karloff, that's a Slavic name, but you're uh, not Russian, are you? Uh, no, not Boris? really. 
Uh, you were born in... I was born in Dulwich, England. When did you take the name uh, of Boris Karloff? Well, when I first went on the stage, 1910, actually, up in Western Canada. Uh, why did you change your name, Boris? Well, it was a family name on my mother's side, and uh, I thought my own name of Pratt, if I ever got uh, known in the theatre, might be unfortunate. What was your real name? <laughs> Pratt. George... Uh, William Henry William Pratt. Henry Pratt. The youngest of nine children, your father dies when you're just a baby, Boris, so you're brought up by your mother and your older brothers and your sister. As a boy, you attend school at Uppingham. At your family's insistence, you enroll at King's College in London to prepare for the consular service, but you already had an eye on the theater as a career, so in 1909, your mother having passed away, you leave King's College, Boris, and take ship for the greener pastures of Canada. As an actor, Boris? No, I, uh, I worked as a farmhand to start with. Yes, you work your way westward across Canada to Vancouver, British Columbia. Mm -hmm. While waiting for that first acting job, uh, how did you make a living? Well, I cleared land, uh, shoveled coal, laid streetcar tracks, did all sorts of things. Then you hear that the Gene Russell players in Kamloops are in need of an experienced actor. You apply and are accepted. But uh, you hadn't any professional experience, had you? Not whatsoever. Your only experience was, I think, at 10. What did you do in a play then? Well, uh, that time I was, I used to live in Enfield. And every year at Christmas time, they did a sort of a pantomime for two nights, and uh, I played the Demon King in Cinderella. <laughs> and what, what was the play you made your professional debut in, Boris? Uh, by golly, that was prophetic, too. That was The Devil by <laughs> Franz Bolder. <laughs> well, you're, you're learning your craft as you play with one stock company after another, rattling across the United States and uh, Canada, moving from boarding house to boarding house, and often appearing in two different plays a week. Said Boris Karloff. For months, I had made overtures to the three Vancouver stock companies. There didn't seem a chance, not even a faint hope, of becoming an assistant to the stage manager. Then one day, in an old copy of Billboard, I came across an advertisement of a theatrical agent in nearby Seattle. His name was Kelly. I went to see him and introduced myself as an English actor. I spun him a yarn about my West End successes, shamelessly, told him I had been in all the plays I had ever seen and I was forced to retire to Canada temporarily for my health and was now hale and ready for a comeback. He didn't believe a word of it, of course. Soon after that interview, whether the agent had believed him or not, talent untested, Pratt got a letter from Kelly informing him that he'd placed him in the Gene Russell Stock Company based in Nelson. En route to becoming a professional actor, Pratt took the stage name Boris Karloff, and although it would be a delight to say that, quote, the rest is history, end quote, such is not the case. It never is in this unpredictable world of entertainment. Said Boris Karloff, I went to the theater feeling no slight trepidation at the prospect of my first professional stage work. I hadn't the foggiest idea of how to take stage direction. Rehearsal routine and makeup were both completely foreign to me. I mumbled, bumbled, missed cues, rammed into furniture, and sent the director's blood pressure soaring. When the curtain went up, I was getting $30 a week. When it descended, I was down to $15. Karloff learned by doing, 
and grew his talent, proving that, in essence, the technical bits can be learned, but only the audience can teach you how to act. The business of show was something else entirely. Said Boris Karloff, I was with that company for the better part of two years, and how we worked. We rehearsed all day and every day, and we played in the evenings in any sort of barn or shack, wherever we happened to be. For over a year, we toured Western Canada. Strange as it seems, I became fairly popular as a villain. Early in 1912, we were stranded in Regina, Saskatchewan. Everyone in the company, including myself, of course, was flat broke. The situation was rotten and the prospects dismal. Things were slightly better with the two years he spent with the Harry St. Clair players. Said Karloff, Harry St. Clair was absolutely honest. If there was no money in the office, the ghost didn't walk. But when business was good, he paid us what he owed us. From this company to the next, Karloff continued to work throughout the United States. Illinois, Minnesota, Iowa, Kansas, Colorado, Nevada, and eventually found himself in Los Angeles, California in the winter of 1917. Well, Boris was a very capable character actor, Ralph, and he was tremendously popular with children. And it was a common sight to see Boris striding down Mission Street, smiling happily, and always followed by an admiring group of six or eight small fry. He was a hard-working actor, wasn't he? Yes, indeed he was, Ralph. I can still see Boris sitting in the dressing room hour after hour, working with grease paint, nose putty, crepe hair, and wigs, trying to perfect the art of changing his appearance. Anything to cover myself up, in other words. (laughs) And Boris, believe me, what you taught yourself in that dressing room certainly paid in your movie days. Thank you very much. Thank you for being with us. James Edwards of San Mateo, California. Years did you spend playing stock cars? Oh, 10 or 11 years. Mm-hmm. A training ground for proficiency. A very good training ground. Very few actors today have had. But it was a life and an adventure filled with uncertainty, especially where money was concerned. What Karloff found in Hollywood in December 1917 was an art form that was quickly rising to its first plateau of greatness, an art form that was becoming the most popular in the world an art form that was quickly becoming an industry, and its namesake, Hollywood, an industry town. Karloff, ever pursuing the theater, but seeing the ready money available in the flicker, still had to work other jobs in order to eat regularly. He began in motion pictures, as most of us actors do, as an extra or background player. For a decade, he struggled playing cowboys, Indians, French-Canadian trappers, and villains of all stripes. But an actor is mostly a salesman, or saleswoman, endlessly selling their wares to casting agents, directors, and the like for the next job. It is a soul-crushing enterprise at times, and coupled with the uncertainty of steady employment, it can use a person up, and in no time at all, sing for your supper, indeed. Then, as now, an actor's life is hard and full of uncertainty. But in the early 20th century in America, American workers began to organize for better working conditions and better consistent wages, born after the erosion of conditions and exploitation brought upon them by employers born of the Industrial Age. 
Labor movements sprung up and labor unions were formed to protect workers. Actors were and are no different in their needs. The lucky few who became rich and had influence could help to see to it that their fellows were treated well and compensated fairly. But by the early years of the 20th century, this influence was limited. The Players was a group formed by actors with these ideas, nascent as they were, when faced with powerful stage producers like Claw and Erlanger, who controlled much of the American theater scene. Out of The Players sprang Actors' Equity in 1913, which in turn joined the American Federation of Labor in 1919. Theatrical actors now had a union to protect them and to bargain working conditions, hours, and contracts. Boris Karloff, a rank-and-file actor who went from acting job to acting job, supporting himself with employment outside the film business, was just like thousands of actors before and thousands since. Throughout the 1920s, Karloff was a freelance actor, meeting new agents and winning roles that brought him to the attention of directors and casting agents for the studios. But in the decade before, stardom struck, and the slim possibility of regular acting work was assured. Karloff, like others, had little protection when it came to working conditions, overlong hours, and compensation on the set. The studios became large corporate factories that made films and distributed them. They controlled everything, including actors' contracts, wages, and working conditions. Actors' equity had no agreement and no bargaining influence with the Hollywood studios. Nor did the Maskers Club, an organization in Hollywood of which Karloff was a member. You started in pictures as an extra, didn't you? Yes. What was the movie, do you recall? I think it was a Doug Fairbanks picture. His Majesty the American, yes. But uh, I played I played an extra in a sort of a revolutionary army. I think I was the thirteenth from the left in the back row somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but jobs for extras and bit players are not too frequent. One hot summer day in nineteen thirty, walking along Hollywood Boulevard, you drop in the offices of the Actors Equity Association, more to get out of the heat and rest your tired feet than anything else. And casually, you ask if there's anything uh, going on in the way of casting, and what did the man say? He said, are, are you working? And I said, at the moment, no. And he sent me downtown for to try out for part in a play downtown. You recall the play? A play called The Criminal Code. I shall always remember it. I couldn't go into the Maskers Club because I hadn't paid my dues. Said Boris Karloff, I would have liked a cup of coffee, but didn't have the cash. So I walked into the Actors' Equity office to see if there were any letters. Of course, there weren't any, but as I turned away from the desk, that girl said, By the way, are you working? I said, No. She told me that a play called The Criminal Code, which had run in New York, was being rehearsed, and they needed players for the small parts. I rushed down to the theater and got the part of the convict, the killer of the piece, who kills the stool pigeon. It was a brilliantly effective part. Karloff would then take the character of Ned Galloway directly from the stage to the film version that Howard Hawks directed. After only a handful of roles after The Criminal Code, Karloff was cast by James Whale as the monster in Frankenstein in 1931. The rest, as they say, is history. Frankenstein, starring Boris Karloff, the part that made you immortal to moviegoers. And Boris, remember, when you came out to my place at Nancino 
and we work outside in the yeah. yard yeah. to make the yeah. makeup. Yeah. And then from there we went to Malibu Beach. That's Three o'clock right. in the morning, I Three o'clock right. in the morning, yeah, that's, that's right. right. That's and then right. we made the makeup and we went out to location and after that Beca we came back to the studio. And, and worked you, all that night. All that night and carry uh, Colin Clive and you back I with the bloodhounds chasing you. I remember it. It's what a stamina. <laughs> well, <laughs> It's wonderful to see you. Great to see you, Jay. Thank so you. The compassion, Boris, that you gave to the character of the monster is still considered one of the top acting achievements of the screen. Thank you, Jack Pierce. Thank you. How many Frankenstein pictures did you actually make, Boris? Three, and three only. Yes. <laughs> but it was only the beginning as far as actor-labor relations in Hollywood. The Maskers Club, of which Karloff was a member, was formed in 1925 partly as a social and networking organization and partly as a nascent labor organization formed to address grievances with the studios. At that time, an actor who may have had a contract dispute could only hope for arbitration action from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The studios ruled with an iron fist. Within the membership of the Maskers were six individuals who, frustrated by the lack of bargaining power, met secretly in March of 1933. They were Benton Churchill, Charles Miller, Grant Mitchell, Ralph Morgan, who became the Union's first president, Alden Gay, and Kenneth Thompson. Within three months, the group was joined by 18 others who became the first of the Guild's officers and board of directors. They included Ralph Morgan, Alden Gay, Kenneth Thompson, Alan Mowbray, Leon Ames, Tyler Brooke, Clay Clement, James Gleason, Lucille Webster Gleason, Claude King, Noel Madison, Reginald Mason, Bradley Page, Willard Robertson, Ivan Simpson, C. Aubrey Smith, Charles Starrett, Richard Tucker, Arthur Vinton, Morgan Wallace, Lyle Talbot, and Boris Karloff. What they all shared were histories of long working hours in the theater and on film sets, and the trouble with conditions and contracts dictated by the studios. They all shared a compassion for all actors, and when Eddie Cantor came along, becoming the Guild's second president in later 33, and insisted that any agreements bargained with the studios benefit all actors, and not just established ones, the ranks of the Guild swelled and membership climbed. It was not until 1937, in the passage of the National Labor Relations Act, that the studios recognized and began to negotiate with the Screen Actors Guild. A living testimony to your love of your profession is that you were one of the 20 actors who founded the Screen Actors Guild in 1933. You hold gold membership card number nine. This is your life, Boris Karloff. By this time, Boris Karloff was a star, an established actor, and was making good money at Universal and at other studios. Now in middle age, Karloff knew that his fortunes could change at any time, as they so often do with careers in show business. And Karloff remembered the punishing, arduous hours in the makeup chair and on the set of James Whale's production of Frankenstein. But Karloff, long known by friends, co-workers, fans, and admirers alike, as a compassionate man who always tried to help others, knew there was something of a risk in supporting this new union, the risk of the studios dropping him. But Karloff and the other founders of the Screen Actors Guild understood, though, was that the producers, their employers, were not their enemies. Their employers were, in many ways, their business partners, and one group could not work without the other. 
These courageous men and women who founded the guild did it without threats, violence, or disrupting the industry. In fact, there wasn't a strike by SAG until 1960. An earlier possible strike was called in 1948, but was averted at the last moment as the two sides, actors and studios, came to agreement on the contract being negotiated. Boris Karloff came up the hard way, through the ranks. He worked hard and enjoyed the ups and downs of a long apprenticeship before a little stardom helped him for the rest of his career and kept him employed. He stood courageously with the first 18 members of the Screen Actors Guild and worked hard at that too, laying a solid foundation that working professional actors enjoy today. As a professional actor, I am grateful for what Karloff, whose own membership card number was nine, by the way, and the other founders risked and helped to do for me and all actors working today. I am in their debt. Today, SAG-AFTRA flourishes as the largest and strongest of the entertainment unions. But new challenges face us now and in the future, especially as new technologies enter the arena. All of us in the union should look to the methods and ideologies of Karloff, Morgan, Cantor, and the other founding members and remember that the producers for whom we work are not our enemies. They are our partners. A few years ago, SAG partnered and merged with AFTRA, the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. Boris Karloff changed his name, worked hard, and became a success. The Screen Actors Guild changed its name for the benefit of all. Boris Karloff would be proud. You have been listening to An Actor's Notebook. Written and presented by Mark Redfield. Sound design and editing by Jennifer Rouse. Clips from This Is Your Life, Boris Karloff, with host Ralph Edwards, originally aired on November 20th, 1957, three days before Karloff's 70th birthday. This program, copyright the Mark Redfield Company. Now available. Redfield Arts Audio presents Season 13, starring Rick Deskin, Mark Redfield, Brink Stevens, and Andy Schrem. Come on, man. open up. Somebody called 911. I think I hear. Well, it's opening night of the Majestic Theater's 13th season of their annual big ticket item, a Seattle Christmas Carol. And I, stage manager Nick Papadakis, call me Pop, they all do, has locked himself all alone inside the tech booth, dressed as Ebenezer Scrooge, but I'm getting way ahead of my story. Hi, I'm here to see Jane Bigelow, please. I bet you would. And what makes you so special? I'm sorry? Of course you are. Who are you? Oh, I'm sorry. We know that. I'm sorry. I'm Nick Papadakis. I'm the new associate stage manager. Uh. You're the lucky lottery winner. I'll buzz her down. Take a seat. I was about to sit when through the stairwell doors popped. Hi, I'm Jane Bigelow, ASM for the Majestic. You must be none other than Nick Papa... Pa- Papadakis. Papa, Nick. Just call me Nick. Maybe I'll just call you Pop. Come on, I'll give you the tour and we'll be in time to hear the director's pep talk before the rehearsal this afternoon. The first person she took me to see was the head stage manager, Amanda. Everybody calls her Commander Reese. 
my fault. I started it. But don't ever call her that to her face. She'll deck you. Amanda, this is our new associate, Nick Papa's... Nick Papadakis. Nice to meet you. I look forward to working with you. Nice meeting you, Papadakis. Pop. Just call him Pop. Everybody does. Nice meeting you, Nick. Nice meeting you. Is she okay? Eh, it's been a little rough around here lately for everybody. It's been brutal. And then all the weirdness, all the little freak accidents and things that have been happening. Nerves are a little frayed. Maybe it's the handiwork of Jack Fairbank. Pop, don't ever mention the theater ghost again. That's taboo. Never, ever, never. You are fearless leader. One of the finest directors I've worked with and one of the finest writers to ever put words in my mouth. Thank you, Chip Bateman, an actor's actor. Yours is the finest Scrooge we've ever seen in the local scene. High praise coming from you, sir. He doesn't make these speeches before every rehearsal, does he? Shh. Yes. And I just want to tell you all, my heart is bursting with pride at what you've done. Oh no, who has done this? Villainy. That is evil in this place. Elsker, what happened? You see a ghost? Look on this with your own eyes, Tank. I'm looking. What am I seeing? Nothing. You see nothing. Oh, my beautiful clothes for Christmas Carol. Gone, Jack Fairbanks. You go too far this time. Mortachi tua. I don't know. I think our ghosts have been messing around a bit. But I'm hearing rumors. Rumors? That maybe somebody else is behind all this. Somebody who wants to maybe close the theater and sell the building. I hear those rumors too. Jerry Jerome, bastardo. That's what I hear. Jack? No, Nick. Jack. Don't you know any better than to sneak up on a ghost? Wait, you can see me? Hear me? Like Hamlet's old man. I hate playing Cratchit. We should switch roles one year, like Olivier and Gilgood did at the Old Vic. Switch playing Scrooge and Cratchit nightly? Yes! You're mad as a hatter. You'd never remember all the lines at your age anyway. Chip has a good point, Herb. Scrooge has lines? (laughs) I'd never known it, the way you mumble and stumble around on stage. You! Stand by. Come on, Hercules. I only weigh 49 pounds. Stop squirming. I swear, I'm gonna drop you on your head. You drop me, you weenus. I'm gonna tell Jane that you touched me. Why, you? (laughs) Gotten away with it, too. If it wasn't for you meddling spooks. Now give me my scrapbook. Oh, that feeling. To recapture that feeling again. What a glorious night. You were marvelous, Jack. That's what it's all about. That's life in the theater. 